Thanks again for downloading the weekly Curio podcast, the podcast that attempts to smarten you up one stupid sciencey fact at a time. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts from Freak Show and Tell. My name's Tom Britton. And I'm Jeff Wagg, curator of the College of Curiosity. As we always do, we start with the first half of our puzzle. All right, this week, a man could only look south. To his horror, he saw two bears approaching. What color were they? I think the greatest reality show of all time would be Julia Child, Shark Chef. <laughs> I'm sure she had a recipe or two. She had, she had to. So Julia Child, a graduate of Le Cordon Bleu Academy, Academy de Le Cordon Bleu, in Paris, her husband was a, what do you call it, ambassador. Yeah, I think that's working right. Working over there in the government, and she got a, a, a whim in her midlife and decided to go learn to cook, having never cooked before. And then I had a similar, well, I always cooked my entire mm-hmm. life. The men in my family cook. I don't, I don't know why. And I decided in my midlife, you know, I have no formal paperwork on this. I've worked in restaurants, but I, I'm not a chef. I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a cook. And I decided to go to Le Cordon Bleu because I was watching yeah, Julia Child DVDs. <laughs> just, just went to Le Cordon Bleu. That's all. But you were talking about she was, she was a bit of a, a bad mofo. She was. First off, she's huge. I mean, and I'm not commenting on her weight so much as her height. She was like 6'2 or something. Yeah, it was a big, a big lady. Very large woman. And during World War II, like many British citizens, she joined the war effort, but she was actually a bit of a spy. She worked for the OSS, kind of the British version of, you know, the secret intelligence of the military. And one of the first things she did, which may have led to her career in cooking, I don't know, was to develop a shark repellent. So there were a lot of flyers flying around shooting at each other, and a lot of them were ending up in the water for various reasons. It it wasn't uncommon for missions to call for pilots to ditch in the ocean. You know, the plane could only fly so far. The mission was important enough that they were willing to sacrifice the plane, but not the pilot. So the pilots were concerned about sharks. Uh, Therefore, the OSS tried to come up with a shark repellent, and Julia Child developed one that was issued to the military. In fact, I just saw some of these packets uh, the other week in Connecticut. And the idea was that you would have this, it was like a tablet. When you went into the water, if you saw sharks, you'd open the bag and let the tablet kind of do its thing. And what it did was it put a scent in the water that was reminiscent of rotten shark. Which Which is a natural repellent for the species. It's like the only thing that sharks are actually afraid of. Now... Because we learned from Jaws, they'll eat anything. Yeah, right. The license plate was in there. That's right. Uh, Jaws is is so accurate. (laughs) In so many ways. Jaws has done a lot of damage for the shark world, but... Um, they, you know, sharks were a hazard. You know, the USS uh, Indianapolis went down and half the men were eaten by sharks. That's a story in Jaws that happens to be true. So did these things work? Well... It's hard to say. Um, One thing they did do was work at psychological warfare where they gave the men courage enough to say, oh, it's okay, I'm in the water. I've got this packet that will keep me safe. Even if it actually didn't, that was enough to help the war effort and made Julia Child's efforts worthwhile. So I don't know if this is what got her interested in cooking, uh, trying to come up with the ode to dead shark. Well, they uh, weren't trying to save the sailors initially. So the OSS was the American version. That's the CIA. Oh, yeah, a quick, yeah. a quick corrections. That's the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, just before it was the CIA. What they were really working on shark repellent for, as valuable as the men are, the mines for the submarines. Sharks are curious creatures oh, that's and almost right. yes. fearless, and they bump things yeah. to see if it's kind of a lot. They're scavengers. Yeah. So you'll see this in vultures, carrion eaters. They bump things. They just right. bump into stuff. 
And sharks are very much the apex predator. They don't know about us. Yeah. They have no idea we're out no there. No fear. No fear. They were bumping into the mines, bad for the sharks, but also terrible for the wolf, the wolf packs yes. and the war effort. And those wolf packs, the German submariners, were really kicking our butts. So this is why the CIA and I'm sure their British counterpart working together would develop yeah. a shark repellent that incidentally could in theory That's helps, right. but it didn't, it didn't work. It wasn't effective. Right. It, 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 you're absolutely right about it was first done for the, the mines because, you know, sharks are swimming around blowing up mines. That's no good. But still, and expensive. I mean, you got to oh, think yeah. not just the war effort. How much does a mine cost? How, oh, you know, sure. The labor to put it down there, the trained divers, technicians. You don't think about all the people involved in getting a mine in place, and then a fish. Right. Boom. Well, sure. It also, uh, you know, let's say the 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 enemy is nearby and they see a mine go off in the water. Suddenly, they know that whole area is unsafe, and you have lost a lot of military uh, importance. So, anyway, Julia Child, not someone to be trifled with. It would seem that your dog's brain responds to voices like people, which is all my dog wants to do is respond like people. This is an example of convergent evolution. Or at and least I, co- concurrent, concurrent evolution at the very least. Well, I mean, both, both, yeah. because they say that these, these dogs' brains, what, so what they did, you try and put a, uh, an animal in a scanner to find out what's happening in its brain, a, a variety of scanners. Mm-hmm. These things are loud, they're noisy, they're scary for an animal. Yeah. Dogs can be trained, mm-hmm. not so much with a hippo. <laughs> no. So, so this researcher took a lot of very trainable dogs, Labradors and, and Shetlands, etc., put them in the in the machine and trained them to lay. Also, they need to be awake. That's the other yes. eye. They have to hear the voice right. and react yeah. to it. That's the whole point of this study, see how the brain reacts. So they put the dog in there, train it to lay down, train it to not freak out. If you've been in an MRI, it's, yeah, it's, bang, it's bang, frightening yeah. for ch- human children. Mm-hmm. I can imagine a dog is not going to yeah. have that capacity. And you can... Talk to a human child while it's in the MRI to calm it down. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with a dog. The whole point of the experiment is to talk to it right. and see how it reacts. And it turns out its brain lights up very similarly to how human brains light yeah. up. And the convergent evolution idea mm-hmm. is that we don't believe that comes from a common ancestor no. because other species in between don't have it. So both of our brains independently through evolution have solved the same problem in the same way, right? Even though we're quite remarkably different, yeah, which I just think is so neat when it does that. When you have you know, independently mm-hmm. the same pressures create the same answer in species that well, we don't think of ourselves as that different from dogs because of the concurrent yeah. evolution that we have. We familiarize right. for a reason, right? Yeah, and so you know, dogs um, dogs started hanging around with people, and suddenly the dogs that would respond to human voices better were more valued by the humans. They were the ones that got bred, and this kept going on and on. And then suddenly you have dogs that actually listen pretty well. I mean... No, and, and they also adapted to eating starches. Right, right. That, that was, was the thing. The they hung one. out on our yeah. dump. So we changed. We became more farmers mm-hmm. than hunter-gatherers. Yeah. So now we produce more waste in a set area. Right. As opposed to a wandering, scavenging primate. So now we're more effective, more efficient, and we're locating our trash in one area. And this either wolf or wolf hybrid, it's not settled science exactly right, where dogs came from. Right. We know they're a, a subspecies of wolf, but they may have been a distinct subspecies, right. blah, blah, blah. Hang out. And then, yeah, they self-select almost. The dogs that yeah. can get closer will get more reward than the dogs that are skittish and run right. away. So, And then also we're rewarding those dogs. They are natural guards. Mm-hmm. They will sound an alarm to themselves. We hear them and we learn from our environment. This eventually becomes a guard dog in your house. And then, what, half a million years of 
shared genetic history right. and manipulation. Lots of manipulation. That's the interesting thing about dogs is they have a much bigger genome than humans. There's a lot to manipulate. So we have dogs that are trained to kill badgers. They're called dachshunds. You ever wonder why dachshunds are shaped the way they are? It's so they can go down badger holes. We have other dogs that are designed to get along with horses, and they're called Dalmatians because they're from Dalmatia, not because of the horses. And then they were trained to run under carriages, and you know, and but they were actually guard dogs. They're, they're kind of an interesting side thing. But yeah, dogs are fascinating, and if people tend to think, oh, they're just wolves that live with us. But no, they're, they're their own thing, and they evolved with people. Uh, it's almost a symbiotic relationship, really. You know? When you say genome, so they have a backup strand almost of DNA. Well, they have like more redundancy. genes. Yeah, yeah, it's just longer strands. So whereas a viable or non-viable fetus would be formed for a dog, it has a plan B almost to make it more likely... So fruit flies are the equation that I They're got the from opposite, that. Right. The reason the reason we use fruit flies in the in the lab as a similar kind of idea. The genes are unique and distinctive and different, and we don't see that with other mammalian species. Right. Dogs are unique that way, which is why we look at a cat. The dimorphism within a mm-hmm. species, whatever that phrase would be, a cat is a cat is a cat. You have a hairless cat. You have a large yeah, main not ca- as much coon cat. But a cat's a cat. Now look at a Chihuahua and look at a Great Dane. Yeah. And then if you want a really funny mental image, imagine that they can breed. And they can. I mean, And it's you know, hilarious every yeah. time they do it. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. They absolutely can breed. So they, they are the same species. That's the basic differential between species is that they can breed. Dogs, look how different dogs are and they can still breed. And compare that to humans, we're not that different. Uh, not even close compared to dogs. So we're going to throw two links in the show notes, one from the BBC News about how dogs may have evolved on the waste dump. And so this is a similar thing to the story we already knew of how dogs evolved, but now it's putting that importance on the fact that we created waste dump and that's the intermediary uh, resource that we're both going for. That's where we meet is on the waste dump. Yeah, right. Our best friend outside of the human <laughs> species, we met on a waste dump. And the other one is from uh, PBS.org. It's a pop sci article about, a, about that study in current biology. So mm-hmm. if you have a subscription to that, you can look up the actual study in current biology talking about the uh, putting dogs into not just MRIs, but various uh, chambers to yeah. see how their brains light up and spark when you say, here, boy, come here. And now you cannot blame your dog for tipping over the trash. They've evolved to do that. And now a bit of a mixed bag, sad news. We have a, a very important primate researcher. You were just saying as important as Jane Goodall yes. that we haven't heard of. Uh, February 6th of 2014 at 76 years old, we lost Allison Jolly, an American-born primatologist who went to Madagascar, and it's similar to what Jane Goodall did, but she was yeah. focusing more on the evolution of social intelligence and helped disprove a long-standing scientific tenet that males were dominant in every primate species. That's a quote from her New York Times, uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the uh, obituary. Obituary, what I'm yes. trying to think of. That's very cool. In the 60s. Right. Helen Reddy, hear me yeah, roar. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right she finds evidence that there's a primate species, and I'll read just a little bit more here. Uh, more unnerving to colleagues was her discovery that in some primate species, females run the show. <laughs> the finding upended a bedrock assertion in evolutionary biology based on studies of chimps and orangutans in captivities that males dominate females in every primate species, including humans. That's very cool that she found an exception to that rule and very interesting from an evolutionary standpoint. Yes. Because the alpha male competition, 
I always thought just sort of spilled over accidentally into right. us running the show. That's how I thought of it, too. Yeah, right. we compete for females, and right. that's what the evolutionary imperative is. And then accidentally, we compete with the females yes. also. Right. Well, apparently not. You know, these are, these are, um, she says, uh, the females would have, uh, uh, would pounce upon dominant uh, males, snatch a tamarind pod, uh, right. food they like. Not and me. as he, as she, as she, hear my sexism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As she's <laughs> snatching it from his hand, she cuffs him on the ear in the process. Give me that. What do you think you're doing? That's obvious though. That's not, that's not debatable. That is real yeah. primate dominance yeah. behavior. Absolutely. That is indisputable, and yet it was disputed because the sexism still lingering in the 60s. True. And she fought it. And good on her for that. Right. For sticking to her guns. It, the, you know, so these are lemurs we're talking about, which it's interesting that about this time, they changed the taxonomy of lemurs, and suddenly, well, they're not really primates. They're pro-primates. They're like, you know, it's like, oh, so the sexism is more important than, you know, this new discovery. Whatever. But I'm, I'm sorry that she's gone. I'm very happy that she's done the work. I wish more people knew about her. Congratulations to the city of Baltimore for helping to clean up the Earth's oceans. Well, at least Baltimore's harbor. So, you know, if you've ever been to Baltimore, they have a, an inner harbor that is really inland, which is kind of why Baltimore is there. You know, these are a very valuable piece of uh, real estate. A lot of wars fought there, War of 1812, Francis Scott Key and the whole Star-Spangled Banner. Yeah, that was Baltimore Harbor. But they've got another problem is that... Um, it's surrounded by hills. Everything drains into the inner harbor, including all the trash for the city. So they've had a trash problem in the harbor forever. And uh, when I was there maybe 10 years ago, there used to be these little guys that would ride around in, they're like street sweepers, but they're in the water. Strange looking things. They'd be like riding around in this little boat that had like conveyor belts on both sides. And you could tell they weren't very effective. And the guy would be like spending five minutes trying to get a Coke bottle, you know? Um, but apparently now they've got something new. They put in a permanent installation, a permanent sort of uh, what you're describing. Mm-hmm. It's this rather seashell-looking. I think nah. they made it a little aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> a little seashell-looking thing that sucks in the water and takes the trash with it and spits out the water yep. on the other side. Essentially just filtering. But it's the first, well, not the first, but it's a big installation of uh, non-manned, mm-hmm. powered by a waterfall and solar. <laughs> so cool. it also a little less drain on the resources in general. Yep. A little green energy going there. And hopefully will be a semi-permanent way or a permanent installation there and then moving on to a permanent way to clean this up in other harbors. Yeah. A bigger way. we got to figure this out. Yeah. Baltimore's, this has to be figured out. It These does. floating islands of plastic garbage. Yeah. They aren't going to go away is the problem. We can't wait it out. No, it's true. It is going to be a big problem. And Baltimore is a great place for a test like this because if you've ever watched a Roomba, most people first encounter a Roomba, they're like, well, how does it know where the dirt is? Well, it doesn't. It just bounces off the walls until it gets every area, and the inner harbor is like that. So this thing is going to be great. People are going to be able to watch it and see how it interacts. And then the newer Roombas actually do start to figure out where stuff is, and I imagine that same technology will be applied to these. Now, the big garbage patch, you know, the vortex of garbage in the ocean, in the uh, Pacific, it's a little overstated. It isn't, it isn't, the image people have of floating islands of plastic is a little unrealistic. It's a lot of little pieces of plastic that aren't all on the surface. They're in the water column. And that's actually worse because they're getting into organisms and things like this. It, it is a big problem. And, and this other kid, uh, a 19-year-old kid has come up with a way possibly to clean this up. I think this is a more of a pie-in-the-sky thing, but he's invented these long booms that are robotic, similar to the thing in Baltimore, 
that you would send into the garbage patch and just leave it there. Solar powered, you know, it would just go around and collect the stuff. What I don't understand, and, and the figure is he believes it would get 725,000 tons of plastic out of the ocean. But where's it going? I mean, you know, someone's going to box it up these and then I, yeah. I wish this stuff were recyclable too. If we could find a way to make money. Yeah, off yeah that would be great. It, you know, like the 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 homeless person who goes through and gets the cans. Right, right. They get a little bit of cash, and you get the cans out of. That's yep. a very valuable resource. It is. If we could find something like that with this plastic, some reason. Yeah. For even a poor country or a poor person to do some low level entrepreneurship. That would be so great. So if I could get out there, if I could invest in one of these, and then I can you know go to kiva.org and get mm-hmm. one and take it out and drop it in there and make a little bit of money per day. It's just what do you, yeah, what do you you're moving garbage stuff. from one area to another. Right. And and somehow so you know I'm imagining this thing collects in buckets of some sort. Someone's going to come empty the buckets. I mean, 725,000 tons of plastic isn't going to be stored in these What country's going to want that? Yeah, That's I, significant. Then you've got another we had that barge yeah. moving cuz New York didn't want it. It went down right. to Florida it was that. the 80s yeah. or 90s. Yeah. We're going to have that scenario. So it's and this shows how complicated these solutions can get. Yeah. Well, let's just go get the garbage out of the ocean. Well, okay, yeah. and then what? And then if you drop it in, what, Rhodesia? Yeah, right. Now you're doing what we've always done, find the poor country and just crap we'll on them, throw our chemical waste in their backyard? Yeah. Why not Sweden? Why not Switzerland? Ultimately, well, you know. we need to throw away less plastic. I mean, that's the ultimate answer. Um, this stuff will break down in time. It isn't permanent. It might take a few hundred years, uh, which in you know the terms of the Earth's age is nothing, but... We, you know, every plastic bag you buy, even if you recycle it or reuse it, it will probably end up in the ocean in one form or another at some point, uh, or it, at the very least in a landfill. What so, a complicated problem, too. You use a canvas bag, but in order to offset the carbon for a canvas <laughs> bag, you have to use it 37 times. Yep. And it gets dirty. And, Most people use yeah. it 10. Right. So your canvas bag is, with all good intentions, worse than a plastic yep. bag. And paper bags are, if you use paper bags, the paper producing process produces so much pollution, and it's actually more pollution if it's recycled. And yet it's offset by the fact that you're now growing trees That's exclusively true. to provide paper. So That's if you true. stopped using paper, I would raise those trees and build a Walmart yeah. or a car wash, which is even worse for the environment. So these problems are not as simple no. as Dora the Explorer taught me. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> even uh, even t- Tim Minchin's uh, canvas bag song, unfortunately, is only part of the solution. But this paddle wheel technology is is fairly efficient because it's it's old technology, right? I mean, these these yeah. moving p- pulling not I mean like a a, a windmill or mm-hmm. water, but I mean like pulling things out of the water with. Yeah, paddle wheels has been done for a long time. Yeah, the scoop would pick it up, and you know, and I think Baltimore's original purpose is just to get the surface trash out of there, you know, and uh, I think it would work fine for that. But that will lead me into this tangent that I'm going to go into about <laughs> Baltimore. Um, so Baltimore Harbor, if you've ever been there, it's a tourist spot. Um, if you've seen The Wire, they don't show the inner harbor much. This is the touristy part. Uh, it has nothing to do with the TV show. And one of the things they have there is a big old wooden ship. It's the USS Constellation. And here's the interesting thing about the Constellation. Nobody really knows what ship it is. Um, There have been different groups who've claimed... So there were two Constellations. There was a sloop and there was a frigate. And what's the difference? What, how a sloop is a smaller version. Uh, it's a smaller ship. It has a different number of masts. Frigates are bigger. So obvious to someone who knows that's yes. a sloop, that's a frigate. Okay. So, but here's the problem. Uh, the sloop... The USS Constellation was decommissioned, depending on who you talk to. Some people say it wasn't. This is, you know, how history goes. 
And then the frigate was commissioned. It was actually the last um, naval vessel commissioned that was all sails, had no engines. Okay, so this thing's out there. Do you know what year that was? It was 1855, I believe. Okay, okay. It was around there. So before the Civil War. Years go by, the ship is there, people see the ship, and they say, oh, that's the Constellation. Let's conserve it. Let's fix it. Well, the people who did that assumed that it was the frigate, and they actually rebuilt the ship as a frigate. It was so deteriorated that it was you know, just a mess, so they rebuilt the ship as a frigate. Later on, someone comes and says, well, no, 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 that was the sloop. And at this point, no one's really sure what the hell this thing is. It's some amalgamation of the two ships. Someone has suggested that it was the frigate built with parts of the sloop originally. And so go and visit the Constellation. You will get a great piece of naval history out of it, but you won't really know what ship you're on. Now, if you go to Boston, they have the USS Constitution, which is very similar. We do know what that ship is, but the connection is to this story is a little weird. Anyone who's familiar with the USS Constitution, big sailing ship, it used to have paddle wheels. Somebody had an idea that uh, sailing ships, no engines, one of the big problems were you'd get out in the sea and be becalmed. No waves, uh, no wind, no current, you're stuck there. That's a good word, becalmed. Becalmed. It's a great Brian Eno song, too. Um... So the guy was like, well, we've got all these men on board, and rowing a large ship like this doesn't really work, but what if we made them power a paddle wheel? So he invented this portable paddle wheel. It went through the gun ports, and then the men would have big levers, and on one side they would go one way, on the other side they'd go the other way, and they were actually able to manage three knots with this thing. Well, three knots is three and a half miles an hour maybe, doesn't sound like a lot. When you're becalmed, that's huge. Well, and if the other ship doesn't have a paddle sure. wheel and it's a battleship. Yeah. I suddenly. mean, you know, I'll take a 1% advantage. <laughs> you know, the tide has turned on let The fog has turned wars. Yeah. Uh, the wind blowing in a direction. You know, the Battle of New Orleans, the sure. fog in the morning, yeah. the lay of the land. I don't know. if Yeah, if both ships are becalmed and I can <laughs> close or retreat or attack and you can't. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's going to be pretty huge. huge. So why did why why don't we see this? Why isn't this a part of history? And it's because of when they invented it. It was the 1850s. Is it still on the ship? Then no, they Boston? took them off. So they took them off. If you go to the museum, um, you can see pictures of what it looked like. They did it as an experiment. They decided that it worked. They took it off and took it back to the Navy and said, hey, we have to do this. But this was at the time when steam engines were becoming reliable. They were a lot simpler. Um and you didn't have to use manpower. You know, you could have the engine power of the ship while the men were firing guns, you know, that type of thing. So it never really caught on. But it was it's an interesting thing to see the USS Constitution with paddle wheels. Television and movie producers are moving into multimedia books and mystery boxes. J.J. Abrams yeah. has created... Well, he created what? Lost? Was that his thing? That Lost. Was his yeah, that was that. Rebooted the Star Trek franchise. He's in yep. charge of Star Wars. I know. He owns Star now. Trek and Star Wars. No man it's should a, have that much power. A nerd's dream. <laughs> Uh, but you found a, a mystery box that he's working right. on? Right, so this this story goes back a little ways. In 2007, I went to TED, the real TED, not TEDx, the actual TED when they were back in Monterey, and J.J. Uh, Abrams was there. Now, this was back in the days when Lost was on TV. I think it was like season two, maybe season three or four, but it doesn't matter. Um, and J.J. Abrams was talking about Lost, but he he went on this crazy tangent. He brought this box out, and he says, I've owned this box for decades, and on the box is a big question mark, and on the side it says Tannin's Magic. 
And so what this was is he went to Tannen's Magic, the legendary magic store in New York City, and bought one of their boxes of junk, basically. They were selling this as $50 worth of magic for $15. And anyone who's ever been to a magic store knows the deal here is that this is stuff that's not selling, no one's ever going to buy. So they throw it in a box, and some curious person like J.J. Abrams well, it's will a grab bag. It. A, a lot, grab of, bag. A lot yeah. of places do that. Yeah. Uh, American Science Surplus thing. does it. Yeah. yeah. So, but J.J. Abrams... Now, I have a lot of criticisms of J.J. Abrams. This isn't one of them. He never opens the box. Never. He has never opened the box because for him, the $15 was to buy a mystery that he could keep forever. So he doesn't know what's in the box. It could be any sort of magic trick there is. It could be books, probably not DVDs. It's not, it's not new enough for that. So he had this idea, and he talked uh, at the TED Talk, he talked about the importance of mystery, and he, he came up with this quote, sometimes mystery is more important than knowledge. And I think there's some truth in that. I think the purpose of curiosity, you know, we're, we're seeking knowledge, but it's the seeking that matters more than the knowledge. So just recently, he's come out with a mystery box that you can buy, and it's, it's very clever. He, the box is made of wood, but it's wood that's 100 years old. It comes from buildings or barns or whatever. This wood has a story. And then the wood box is sealed with a very strange combination lock that's alpha. It's just letters. And so there's a word. Now, when you open the box, there are three things in there. Two decks of cards and a letter inviting you not to open the decks of cards so that you can have the same mystery that he does. He does. So it's 150 bucks, and you might be like, well, this is some crazy gimmick. He's selling, you know, $10 deck of cards, which you can buy the cards separately, by the way. Well, what this really is, is it's a fundraiser for an organization called 826. Um, 826 is a, a crazy nonprofit that is dedicated to helping kids with homework, especially for creative writing. If you have heard of the Pirate Supply Company or the Boring Store or the Boston Bigfoot Research Association, any of those things, they are all 826, and they use the storefronts as kind of a gimmick. The real magic happens in the back. That's where they have a huge classroom set up, and they're working with kids. So if you're in Chicago, the Boring Store is in Wicker Park. You, you go in there, and it's called the Boring Store because it's a spy supply store. And you go in there, and they sell all kinds of little spy gadgets and stuff. And, you know, it's the Boring Store. There's nothing going on here. No need to come. Anyway, Abrams is, is a big fan of this concept of teaching kids how to do creative writing, so he's created this mystery box to raise money for A26. And even though, in my opinion, he destroyed Star Trek, I have to give him credit for this idea. I think it's brilliant. But apparently, it's not the first time he's done something like this. No, he, he's got a book also he put out with a three-time Jeopardy champion. The <laughs> two of them work together. I can't find... So my friend Emily, that I, I do a, a fire-eating piece hmm? with, she and I do a, a clown sketch bit. Uh, I'm over at her house, and it's either hers or her boyfriend's because they share a space. Yeah. She takes this book out, and the book is inside of a little box. So you slide it out of like a slip cover. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is the book's full of stuff. And the book is this two stories in one concept that, that these two writers came up with. So two writers writing two stories in two books. And wow. it's this cool idea. It's a romantic mystery meta novel. So you have this novel of an enigmatic Eastern European author. Hmm. And within the margins, and then within pieces in the book, I'll get to in a second, pieces, things shoved in the book is what I mean. Within the margins, two bibliophiles start to have a little romantic tete-a-tete uh -huh. as they solve the mystery of the European writer, or try to. Mm -hmm. 
And so they're writing in the margins to each other in the libraries. They return this book. And then they throw in a bar napkin and then a, a nautical guide and then a, and so clues to Very help cool. them along the way. So they're annotating this book to each other <laughs> specifically. And the book is gorgeous. The design, I can't believe they made this. And then we just looked at the price. What was the price? It was like 21 bucks. It was, that, I feel like I'm selling it now. Yeah, I just but added it to my cart. Yeah, It's crazy. Uh, when you see it as a conversation piece, it's absolutely spectacular. And then I have not yet read it. The review I've gotten from my friend Emily, though, is that the story, both stories, mm -hmm. and then as a result, that tertiary story they create <laughs> are all very good. She enjoyed the novel, not just the gimmick. That's impressive. But I love that we're now creating in the ear of the iPad. You can't get this on the iPad. Right, no. It, 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 well, maybe you can, but it's not going to have the same tactile yeah, It's like the old response. Pink Floyd albums. You know, when you bought Dark Side of the Moon or The Wall, it came with stuff. There yeah. were stickers in there and, you know, and other things. You can't get that anymore. And I like the idea that this guy... No, I disagree with you on Star Trek. I, no, I, I know. Like, I like the reboots. <laughs> I did. Uh, I think they're fine. I think they're at, they're certainly as good as the odd numbered ones. Uh, uh, <laughs> I yeah, mean, Star you know, Trek five. Yeah, if they go and try and bring whales back to Earth, <laughs> I was Star Trek four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I like the idea that this guy is doing something really, really creative yeah. and really taking a chance. Because what's the point in having money and fame if you don't squander it on crazy ideas? Absolutely. And our continuing segment: wrong, wrong things you were incorrect about. I believe so. Here's how Jeff and I work this. We have a Wikipedia page. We put it in the show notes about every third episode. You yeah. can find it on either of the websites. We go through there and we find something in like 10, 20 seconds. Go, oh, cool. I'll do this one. You do that mm -hmm. one. So we don't both pick the same one and embarrass ourselves while recording. <laughs> I, up until this second, thought this was true. Benjamin Franklin did not propose that the turkey be used as a symbol for the U.S. instead of the bald eagle. Now, if you're not from the U.S., that's something I've heard my whole life. <laughs> yeah, me too. That the turkey, which is a bird, and this may not be true either, I thought was so dumb it would look up during a rainstorm and drown. Yeah. Okay, domestic turkeys. Yeah, wild that. turkeys are different, yeah. He did serve on a commission that tried to design a seal after the Declaration of Independence. His proposal was an image of Moses. So he did yeah. have a different image in mind, but that's not a turkey. His objections to the eagle as a national symbol and preference for the turkey were stated in a 1784 letter to his daughter in response to the Society of Cincinnati's use of the former. He never expressed that sentiment publicly. Yep. So I was 100% wrong. And everyone has been. I mean, I, I had thought that too. Uh, all right, so mine is, mine is something that I didn't know until I read this article maybe a week ago. Fortune cookies. Everyone's seen fortune cookies. Where do they come from? Well, China. Of, no, they're not from China. In fact, you go to China, you're not going to find fortune cookies anywhere. In, Chinese, in China, they're regarded as a, an American novelty. They actually come from Japan. Somehow, throughout history, uh, the Japanese brought them over here, but the, the entrepreneurial Chinese uh, immigrants who were creating this new style of food that we call Chinese food, which the Chinese don't actually eat, uh, just included them because people like them. So, um, so yeah, if you're looking at a fortune cookie, it is actually of Japanese origin, not Chinese. And a fun idea is that now that China is opening up to the West more and more, mm -hmm. as they serve American tourists, they're adding the fortune <laughs> cookie to the menu. <laughs> and so we are one pop star in China away. Like if Jackie Chan starts talking yeah. about fortune cookies, it sweeps the nation mm -hmm. 
and we'll have gone full circle yeah, and your absolutely. grandkids will have no idea they were never Chinese because <laughs> every Chinese restaurant in China will have fortune right. cookies in 25 years so it could go completely around the world. Yep. All that remains now is to thank you for downloading our show and beg you to share it with a friend or, you know, uh, if you didn't like the show, share it with an enemy. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. <laughs> and until next week, uh, from Freak Show and Tell, and I'm building a new theater. If you live near Chicago in Edison Park, you can come see the theater that I'm building with my friend Tony Valley. Until next week, either way, I'm Tom Britton. And I'm Jeff Wagg for the College of Curiosity. You can find show notes for this at either freakshowtell.com or collegeofcuriosity.com. We just copy and paste, uh, cheat off yeah. each other's papers. It's the same <laughs> show notes. We leave you now to the answer to this week's riddle. So the riddle was, a man can only look south. To his horror, he saw two bears approaching. What color were they? Well, the only place where you can only look south on this planet is the North Pole, and the only kind of bears they would have up there would be polar bears. But if you answered white, you were wrong. Polar bears are not white. Their hair is transparent. The whiteness is just the diffusion of the light. It was a double bluff the it whole was. time! <laughs>